Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Calling all operatives. From now to March 30th, MGM National Harbor invokes your skills to play Covert Cash, a spy-themed kiosk game series where classified missions, hidden rewards, and daily thrills await. Sign up for MGM Rewards to play and unlock up to $25,000 in hidden free play daily and entries into our grand escape car drawing on March 30th. Visit MGMNationalHarbor.com slash Covert Cash to begin your mission. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. It's Monday, July 3rd, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at our brand new website, inquiring.show, on Twitter, at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Support for today's show comes from Shutterstock. You might know of Shutterstock as home to royalty-free photos, but they offer much more. Kickstart your next interactive project with video clips or music tracks from their collection. All of your creative needs serve to you in one place. Take advantage today of a 20% discount the company is offering for a limited time at Shutterstock.com slash special slash minds. That's Shutterstock.com slash special slash minds. This episode is also brought to you by SendPro from Pitney Bowes. SendPro has three times the features of Stamps.com at one-third the price. Visit pb.com slash minds to learn more and try it free for 90 days. After that, you'll get SendPro for only five bucks a month. That's a third of the cost of Stamps.com. That special $5 rate is good for the lifetime of your SendPro subscription, but only when you sign up at pb.com slash m-i-n-d-s. So have you ever been the recipient of unwanted hugging? Yeah, where it's like a a missed social cue. Yeah. Let's just say. Describe how that works. Uh, It's usually I go in for the handshake and somebody like misreads it and the hug happens and it feels all awkward. Uh And I'm not, I'm actually not much of a hugger. I've learned hugging as a, as a form of endearment. But if, Left to my own devices, I wouldn't want to hug anyone. So if there was someone who was so effusive when you walked through the door that they just couldn't help themselves, they had to hug you, how would you feel? Uh, I would shut down a little bit, to be honest. I think I would shrink away from it. So I think a lot of us think of that kind of extroversion as a sort of positive human trait, although many of us have the same reaction that you do, which is like, it just feels weird. But it's, see, it feels weird for it to feel weird, because this is a person who's showing, you know, p- love for you, which should be in some ways the best emotion to el- elicit in someone else. Yeah, right? we all want to be loved. I think uh, evolutionary would be like, oh, that's a sign of friendship or, you know, non-threatening at, at worst. So have you ever heard of something called Williams syndrome? No, not at all. So Williams syndrome is a rare genetic disorder in which the people who have it 
suffer from what Jennifer Latson calls pathological friendliness. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh because it's clearly a syndrome, but holy pathological friendliness, greatest syndrome ever. Right? You would think it would be like the height of the humanity. And why haven't all of us, you know, become these people who have this pathological friendliness? Wouldn't that make our species better? Wouldn't it allow us to reproduce more? I mean, it seems like the, that genetic condition should be selected for as opposed to rare. So well, let's contrast the difference, though. So I, we, I think we all know the person that is way too positive all the time. We're not talking about that. We're talking about like a level beyond that. A level beyond that. This is some, these, these are individuals for whom, you know, it's almost as if when they see you for the first time, they have fallen in love with you. And that happens every time you walk through the door. Now, there's a downside, of, of course, uh, which is why it's called a disorder. Because I think if it was just the friendliness aspect of it, we wouldn't think of it as a disorder. We think of it as a wonderful personality I w- trait. I would think there's significant downsides to this. Well, <laughs> well um, in addition to, the friendliness, uh, people with Williams syndrome also show some heart difficulties and some cognitive impairments, although the spectrum can vary pretty widely. So in a sense, you can almost think of it as the opposite of the autism spectrum, uh, where instead of feeling that they want to, uh, you know, which is an oversimplification and in some ways a kind of mischaracterization of what's happening in people with autism. Um, but you can think of Williams syndrome as almost being the person who has the, has missed the social cues but has a different reaction to it. So instead of coming away from people and not communicating, um, they instead go towards people and they can't help it. So I have to... I, I just immediately wonder, I can understand cognitive like impairment due to a syndrome like this. The heart, though? Isn't that weird that a thing that is really so loving has an impairment on the heart? I mean, it's just a weird association. Yeah. And by thing, you mean person, I'm sure. Yeah, person. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's it's a it's a really interesting syndrome, and it's one that I've been fascinated by for a long time, in part because the people with Williams syndrome also have a special affinity for music. Anyway, super fascinating, and I don't want to give away too much of the interview. Um, But in order to understand Williams syndrome better, I talked to a journalist named Jennifer Latson, who just put out a book called The Boy Who Loved Too Much. And it's about Williams syndrome. And it's a and it's a a story of how or it's I should say, uh, a book about not just the syndrome itself, but a really in-depth exploration of what it's like to be with someone with Williams syndrome. She spent three years uh, with a young boy named Eli and his uh, mom, and she spent the years, she chose the years 12 to 15 so that she could watch this individual come of age. Wow. And those are difficult Years for anyone. For anyone. Now imagine you have a disruption in your social skills. Oh my goodness. So, with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Jennifer Latson. This episode is sponsored by Forever Labs. Forever Labs was founded by Steve Klausnitzer and his expert team of doctors and biomedical research scientists. Their mission is to help everyone live better for longer. 
Forever Labs helps you store your young, viable stem cells today so that you might be able to access them for future use in different types of therapy, fighting age-related disease, or otherwise. Like the car you drive, your stem cells accumulate wear and tear over time, and the number and therapeutic quality of our stem cells diminishes with age. So the idea is that younger stem cells might be better and having them on hand for the future might help us live a healthier life once treatments are designed in which we can incorporate them. Stem cell usage is advancing rapidly every year and stem cell treatments in animals suggest that they might have the potential to increase your lifespan. So don't wait, get started today. Just go to in.foreverlabs.com store one and enter the referral code MINDS. That's in.foreverlabs.com store one, referral code MINDS. This episode is brought to you by SendPro from Pitney Bowes. SendPro has three times the features of stamps.com at one third the price. If you hate going to the post office, just print stamps from your computer, saving time and money. You don't need any special equipment and you don't need to wait in line. You can compare shipping rates and delivery times between the USPS and other major carriers to ensure you always get the best deal when you ship packages. You can print paid shipping labels for USPS, UPS, and more. You can also track your shipments from the same easy-to-use interface. And what's really awesome is that Pitney Bowes has negotiated special rates for SendPro users. That means that you can start at $0.03 cents per stamp. So visit pb.com minds to learn more, and when you sign up, you'll get SendPro free for 90 days. You'll also get a free 10-pound scale, and when your free trial is over, you'll get SendPro for only 5 bucks a month. That special rate is good for the lifetime of your SendPro subscription. That's $5 a month for SendPro versus $15.99 a month for Stamps.com. That's three times the features at one-third the price. But you can only get this deal for a limited time by going to pb.com minds. That's pb.com m-i-n-d-s to take advantage of this incredible offer. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Jennifer Latson. Thank you. So I actually had a friend growing up who had Williams Syndrome, and I just discovered that a week ago when I went back home to Toronto and was talking to her sister. And it was a total revelation to me because I've actually you know, studied and learned about Williams syndrome. And it didn't even occur to me that the way that she was was actually part of a syndrome. Like it, it was kind of a, a revelation. And that's because of the, the sort of quintessential thing about Williams syndrome that seems to have drawn you to it as well. So describe for us what that is. Well, and it's funny that you say that because there's somebody in my hometown that I grew up with that looking back, I'm like, I bet they had Williams syndrome because now it's so obvious to me. But yeah, at the time, it just seemed like here's this really friendly person who wants to hug people all the time. But that's that's part of the hallmark is an extremely outgoing personality, you know, just a, a joyful kind of warm, socially driven person who wants to connect with everyone they see. And then there's other symptoms, too, that are not as pleasant, which is why it's a disorder and not just being really nice. Um, so there's um, some heart issues that go along with this and some digestive troubles and then intellectual disability, which is around the level of Down syndrome. So an average IQ in the 50s. But despite this general intellectual disability, there are certain areas where um, they do really well, like their verbal abilities are really good and they're great storytellers and they're pretty good with conversation. They're not great 
sort of in the longer, more nuanced conversations, but they're great with small talk and and they're just genuinely cheerful and happy to meet you and they want to talk to you. Yeah. So this friend of mine, I mean, I guess she was more of a friend of some of my uh, brothers of people who were older than me because she was actually quite a bit older than me. And as a kid, you know, that those kinds of little age gaps, four or five years or, you know, seem like, a, you know, an insurmountable mountain. So I never really understood that I knew that there was something different about her in terms of the cognitive side and that, you know, she seemed more fragile in, in sort of a help from a health perspective. But the friendliness I had no idea was part of the syndrome and not part of the person. And it feels weird saying that because it's almost like taking something away from the person because that to me was, you know, one of her greatest qualities is that, you know, she was so open and kind and sweet and nice. And so it's this weird dichotomy where, you know, there's this syndrome in which a very positive attribute seems to be a symptom rather than a personality trait. Right. And that's, I mean, it's sort of, can you separate the two? Because the syndrome comes from genetics, right? So it's a tiny deletion. It's 26 to 28 genes are missing out of about 20,000 that we all have that make us human. And so, you know, that's something that came up a lot in talking to people for the book is, you know, when you think about this positivity or this love of people, is it just the syndrome and not the person? Well, it's still the person because all of our feelings and thoughts are, you know, partly based on the chemicals that are happening in our brains. So it's not that it's any less genuine because they have this syndrome. It's just that their wiring is different and it has this unique outcome. So what do we know about, you know, the sort of genetic basis of disorder? I mean, as you mentioned, uh, 26 genes, is that, am I remembering that correctly? Mm -hmm. That's not a ton of genes compared to, say, Down syndrome or other uh, sort of similar syndromes where there's a lot more, there are a lot more genes involved. And yet it seems to have this, you know, pretty distinctive behavioral profile. So it's not like, you know, we sort of, it's sort of easier to imagine, well, you know, you're missing a couple of genes or a couple of different mutations, and all of a sudden you have different hair color or, you know, some kind of physical attribute. But, you know, this kind of this, as you call it, pathological friendliness seems like a much more complicated behavior to be driven by such a small set of genes. Yes, exactly. So, um, right, because Down syndrome involves maybe 200 to 300 extra genes, and this is just 26 missing genes. And so geneticists call it a micro deletion. I mean, it's a very small deletion. And somewhere else on, you know, the DNA strand, it might have a much more minor effect. And because it has such a huge observable, you know, quantifiable effect, it's helped them really zero in on, okay, well, what is each of these 26 to 28 genes doing? And why are, <laughs> why are these things happening when they're missing, like, seemingly benefits, like being really friendly and sociable, um, having some of these verbal abilities that they do also having, um, musical abilities and musical affinity more than the general population. So the fact that those can be traced back to missing genes has been a real revelation for geneticists. And so they discovered the exact deletion where these genes were missing. It's on chromosome seven in the mid nineties. And they just started kind of one by one um, studying what happens when one of those genes is missing. And so the first one that they identified was the elastin gene 
which is, um, you know, it's partly what makes skin stretchy, but it also plays a really big role in our vasculature. So it's part of the reason why people with Williams get this um, severe heart defect because, you know, the, the fibers in their heart aren't stretchy enough. And so it leads to narrowing of the arteries. So once they found the elastin gene, people just started racing to research what's going on. And then um, more recently, there was a team at the Salk Institute that found a girl with Williams syndrome who had an atypical deletion. She was missing all of the Williams genes, but one, and she had normal social interaction. She wasn't overly friendly. She could carry on a conversation in kind of a more nonchalant way without kind of smothering people with affection. And so that gene that she had is called GTF2I, and it helps control the release of oxytocin. So that helped them kind of zero in on, well, this one gene seems to have a lot of implications for that sociable Williams personality. It's so fascinating to me that there was a gene that somehow got selected for in the general population that dampened our social interactions. I mean, you know, that must have been in somehow, you know, selected for adaptive, I suppose. And I guess the question then is, you know, what is, as, as you call it, pathological friendliness? What is pathological about their behavior? Um, because the one thing that I do remember is al- although the young woman was extremely friendly, it was hard for her to make friends. Right. Well, and really, the, the pathology part of it is probably less hurtful now than it would have been when we were still kind of evolving and living in tribes many years ago. So originally, I guess, in like the early days of humanity, we lived in these tribes of maybe 40 to 60 members. And those people tended to have some kind of, you know, genetic relationship to each other. And if you encountered another tribe with people who looked different from you, It was in your best interest to run and hide or else be ready to fight those people because the biggest danger facing early humans was other humans. So at that time, you know, you didn't want to be overly friendly running up to strangers and hugging them because they might spear you. So less of the case now. But even within um, societies and larger communities as we've grown as humans, you know, there's always competition for resources. There's always a limited amount of things we need to survive and pass on our genes. And so if you're too friendly and too empathetic, like a lot of people with Williams just would give anything that you asked for, that's not going to help you in the long term to either live long enough or, or rise high enough in the social hierarchy to pass your genes on. So what does this also tell us about the role of oxytocin in our social interactions? I mean, I know it's been called the love hormone, and there's been quite a lot of hype with oxytocin, not all of which is based on the science. And I guess people sort of think about it now as as an attachment uh, hormone, a hormone that, that sort of promotes human relationships. But we don't really understand how is that is that true what do we know about and what can we learn from people with williams syndrome about the purpose of oxytocin and how it uh, it is a part of i'm sure a much larger brain circuit right and i think you know when we first when scientists first started to pay attention to oxytocin it was in studies of prairie voles which are these monogamous rodents that are kind of an aberration among the rodent 
universe because they mate for life and they have these very close bonds and they found that there was more oxytocin being released in their brains and that seemed to cement these you know deep attachments and then you know we started to see that oxytocin is released in humans at these pivotal kind of intimate attachment moments so when a mother is nursing her newborn baby there's a lot of oxytocin um, romantic relationships will trigger release of oxytocin, but our brains are pretty stingy with the amount that they give us. So you have um, the pituitary gland kind of dosing it as needed <laughs> in very small quantities. And then uh, what researchers have found is that in people with Williams syndrome, the baseline level of oxytocin is as much as three times higher for them. And that it just sort of comes and goes randomly. You know, it's not being released at certain strategic moments. It's just, it might surge at one moment. It definitely surges kind of every time they have a social interaction. Um, it surges a lot when they listen to music more so than in the general public. So it's just kind of a wild, <laughs> wildly out of control hormone that has this great power of, you know, cementing friendships and making you feel really happy to see someone's face, but it's just kind of happening all the time. So you actually spent three years uh, following a family, uh, a single mom and her son with Williams syndrome, um, Gail and Eli, which you beautifully describe in your book. What did you learn from those kinds of interactions about when and how this sort of effusive attachment gets turned on and off? And did you get the sense that, for example, Eli had the same feelings of, say, first that we, you know, that we do when we first fall in love, the kind of, you know, the butterflies and the excitement, or was it a different way in which he got attached to people? It was absolutely the same, seemingly the same feeling, but just like times a hundred, like the extremes of the joy that he expressed when, like, every time I went to his house, he would be so excited to see me and it was so genuine you know, like, I think pretty much every time I went there, he would say, I'm so excited you're here. This is the best day of my life. And he's not <laughs> being a jerk. You know, he's not being sarcastic. He just really feels that way. So it is. It's like love at first sight every time you meet him, which is amazing. And it's, you know, why I enjoyed hanging around these guys so much. But um, I think that that was the thing is that it's the same feeling, but the degree is so you know, just off the charts. And that's one of the things that I really admired or envied is like, man, I haven't been <laughs> that excited to see another person in a really long time, you know, and that's it's probably like what happened to me 10 times in my life. And for him, it happens every day. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we all want to fall in love. And even when we've been in long term relationships, it's like there's, there's, we, you know, that 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 amazing first rush of a crush, uh, we miss after a while, and we try to, you know, regenerate it, uh, hopefully with the same partner over and over if that's, you know, our goal. For him, because that feeling is so extreme, the drawback is that there's sort of no reining it in. And that was the struggle for his mom over the three years that I spent with him is like, he can know on an intellectual level does know on an intellectual level that he shouldn't run up to people and hug them. He shouldn't greet strangers that, you know, somebody just walking down the street doesn't want him to run up to them and start asking his life story. But knowing that and being able to stop himself were two different things. And he would do things like we would go to a restaurant and he has a, a big problem with always hugging waitresses. 
And his mom would say going in, okay, you're not going to hug anybody, right? And he would say, no, mom. And as soon as we got in, just that force of his love and excitement to see this new person um, was so strong that he would just hug them. And as he was like throwing his arms around someone, he would say, I'm sorry, mom. (laughs) I mean, you know, the the, the downside of the first crush, of course, is the first rejection. Uh, So did you get the impression that he also suffered from those lows that, you know, those of us who who have crushes inevitably experience? He really didn't while I was there, which was part of the thing that astonished me because that was part of what drew me to this book was, I mean, or this topic for a book was how vulnerable and how (laughs) terrifying is this to put yourself out there every time and not everybody wants to talk to you or wants to hug you back um, and how crushing that must be. For Eli, it didn't really seem like he registered that his intensity of love wasn't reciprocated um, because he really took every social interaction as a success, basically. Unless you, I mean, if you shoved him away from you, he probably would would notice that that wasn't friendship, but that never happened. It would just be more subtle things and he just wouldn't pick up on the subtle cues to the point where, so he's in a um, program called Buddy Baseball and it's kids with special needs and um, there's not a ton of kids in this league and so they kind of play the same teams over and over again throughout the season. So, But that's great for him because he gets to know people and he gets so excited when he recognizes someone that he's met before, even if they haven't really you know, ever hung out or had a play date or anything like that. And there's a kid, a lot of the kids in this sports league have autism. And actually that's true for him in his special education classroom too. There's not a lot of people with Williams syndrome. So a lot of the people that he considers his friends have autism and they really don't appreciate his constant physical affection and advances. So there was a kid on this other team that he played one day who clearly really struggled with the amount of affection that Eli would bestow on him. And when Eli was playing second base and this kid got there and Eli just starts talking to him and he's like, hey, buddy, how's it going? Like you went on vacation. And every time he would ask this kid a question, the kid would just scream in his face. Like he really seemed like he was being tortured. And Eli just kept asking the questions. And then finally, somebody else hit the ball and this kid went to home plate and Eli just cheered and he was like, yeah, you're doing it. So he thinks that kid is his friend and nobody can really tell him otherwise because he enjoys talking to him. So, I mean, it's a really interesting uh, reflection on our society that too much friendliness you know, is really, you know, we can we can immediately recognize it as a problem. Um, and reading your book made me wonder why that is. Um, and and, uh, you know, I'm sure you have much better <laughs> Uh, much more thoughtful opinions and and ideas about why that is. But one thing that came to me was, you know, a sense that it's hard for us to believe. It feels like, did you ever get the sense that, you know, people who are meeting him for the first time wondered if this was genuine? I don't know if it was that so much as just that people could tell something was off. Like it didn't feel right and they didn't really know what to do with it. So I'm not sure if they thought he was faking or being sarcastic because to me he seems so genuine that it's not as much a problem of that as like I don't know what to do with this (laughs) like I don't know how to respond and that was something Gail noticed from the time he was a preschooler you know that other kids would just kind of make this face like when he would come barreling towards them with open arms which is what he's done 
from infancy, they would just kind of look and then maybe walk away. Like they didn't really know what to do with him. And um, that's something, yeah, that I haven't quite figured out. But there is a study that I mentioned in the book. It was a study that that made this pretend game where you have to share imaginary goods with other people who are playing this game. And they wanted to see how people would react to different ways of sharing, basically. So if you had a partner who took more than he gave, people didn't like that, obviously. But they equally didn't like it if the partner gave more than he took. So they really reacted the best to partners who just shared and took in equal amounts. And so the conclusion that these researchers took away was, we just have some kind of a wariness towards exceptional people, people who are a little bit different, no matter what the difference is, even though on the surface, it's a positive difference, because who wouldn't want a really generous partner? But yeah, there's just something suspicious about it because it doesn't feel like what we're used to or it doesn't feel like what we would do. One other conclusion they drew too is like, you know, there's this social contract of we expect people to do what we're going to do. And if they set the bar too high, then we feel like they're expecting us to give that much and we don't want to give that much. So it's kind of like, I'm not entering into that contract with you. The terms are too high. Hmm. It's, it's, it's an interesting um, idea. The, the other thing that made me think is that sometimes, you know, if you have a friendship with someone and they're always being incredibly, you know, kind to you and listening to your problems and generous, but they never share problems of their own. Everything's always great. It's everything's fine. You know, over time, that does kind of erode your sense that they are being, you know, completely open with you. Right. And it's just not relatable. It's like, really, you have no problems or you're this excited to see me because sometimes I don't want to see you, you know? I don't know. So let's talk a little bit more about what we know in terms of uh, sort of the syndrome itself and the the sort of genetics behind it. So it does, it does sound like, which is shocking, that there is this one gene that if it's missing is involved in the regulation of oxytocin, which explains a lot of the social behaviors. Um, what about the other genes? Well, the only one that they have like 100% all science, well, not 100%, but most scientists agree on is the elastin gene. And so every other of these 26 to 28 genes, they're still trying to figure out exactly what the nature of it is. So even the GTF2I gene with that regulates oxytocin, I mean, there's not like scientific consensus that this is the one single gene that makes you overly friendly or less friendly. But yeah, some of the other genes play a part in visual spatial ability. Um, so they've isolated a couple that are that are together playing a part in the fact that people with Williams syndrome, you know, despite their really great language skills and musical abilities, they really struggle with um, sort of basic spatial tasks, like try to draw a stick figure, they'll maybe have, you know, the head is over on one corner of the paper and some arms are just floating out in space somewhere else. So um, things like that are putting together a puzzle. And a lot of them are, they get disoriented easily, they um, have trouble finding their way around. And there's also kind of a depth perception component where like people with Williams have a really hard time using escalators because they can't really tell when that stair is coming up and where their foot is in relation to the stair. So there are things like that that are 
that are related to other genes. And they, that kind of also goes hand in hand with a poor mathematical ability. Do we know anything about why this particular set of missing genes clusters together in the syndrome? So like, for example, the cause, is it is it a genetic disorder? Is it in, in terms of, is it hereditary? Obviously, it's a genetic disorder. Um, but, you know, is it, is it, does it run in families or is it, a, is it related to other factors? It doesn't. It's a random mutation that just seems to happen about one in every 10,000 times that cells divide to make a zygote. And there's no real demographic patterns. So unlike autism, it's not more common among older parents. There's no geographic region that has a higher or lower rate of Williams. It's sort of universal across the globe and across cultures and ethnicities and ages. So um, the only thing is that once you, once the mutation happens or the, the deletion happens, then if you have Williams syndrome, you do have a 50-50 chance of passing it on to your kid. I see. It's an interesting thing, though, that for a long time, it went undiagnosed. Um, and and you know, in your book, you, you, you state that it was not until 1961 uh, that it was sort of recognized, and, and it was recognized by a cardiologist. Right. And it was actually kind of simultaneously recognized by, so Williams, John C.P. Williams, who it's named after, is a New Zealand cardiologist, and he noticed, you know, I have these patients that have a very specific cardiac defect. It's called supervalvular aortic stenosis, and it's very rare in the general population, but it's very common among people with Williams, as we know now. So he was noticing, you know, they have this rare defect and they also have a similar nature and similar facial features and cognitive delays. Um, so he identified it around the same time that a German physician also noticed the same thing. So I think in Europe, it's actually called Williams-Buren syndrome more than just Williams syndrome because Buren was the German doctor. So yeah, they both noticed it and recognized it as a a syndrome, but then there was no way, you know, it was just, there was no diagnosis for it until the mid nineties when they found the exact missing genes. And now you can just do a blood test to find out if someone has Williams, but it's still so rare that even with this simple blood test, a lot of pediatricians really just don't know to try testing for that. Like Eli's pediatrician knew that he had all these kind of unique, strangely correlated symptoms, and he wasn't sure what was going on. And then it just happened that a woman who was familiar with Williams syndrome recognized from his facial features that he might have it and mentioned that to Gail. So he could have gone undiagnosed for a long time because he doesn't have, or he doesn't have a very severe version of this cardiac defect. And that's usually how young children with Williams get diagnosed. And the facial features really has another interesting tie-in to some historical ideas about how Williams syndrome has affected our culture. Um, so you t tell us a little bit about that. So a lot of the ways that these facial features are described is elfin. So people with Williams syndrome tend to have kind of a pointy chin, high cheekbones, um, pronounced lips, pronounced ears, upturned nose. They just look like what you would see as a drawing of an elf in a storybook. And um, some folklorists think, well, this is maybe not just a coincidence, but back in the day when we didn't have genetics or modern medicine, 
this was a way of making sense of who are these people that are different from us, but they <laughs> live among us. And so they think that maybe real world people with Williams syndrome could have been the models for these elfin fairy tales. So interesting. And one of the reasons that you wanted to follow Eli in particular uh, was because you wanted to see him come of age. Uh, because, of course, adolescence is a time in which we solidify our personalities and, and a lot of our social and the ways we interact with people. We do a lot of learning. Um, so what did you learn from the way that Eli matured between the ages of 12 and 15? Well, I didn't exactly know what I was in for when I started because I, I liked this idea of coming of age and how would you ever be independent with this disorder if you can't learn not to trust everyone and not to throw yourself at people. And it just was, <laughs> it was a wilder ride. I just didn't think of all the implications of what that would mean to have no social inhibitions as you're sort of going through puberty and trying to make your way through middle school and then early high school. So there were there was a lot more awkwardness than I was um, anticipating. But then he also achieved so much more just in even those three years. And now he's actually 18 in real life at this point. And he has matured so much to the point where he's capable of things that I didn't think he would ever be capable of. And I think, you know, after we kind of got through the hormonal craziness of puberty and he just got a little bit older and able to think things through more logically i think he's just been able to realize okay i can't i can't act this way i have to try something else if i want to get this person to stay in a conversation with me so um instead of smothering people he's really coming up with topics to discuss and things that people might be interested in and not just overwhelming them with physical affection so what's the prognosis for people like Eli? And is he sort of on the high functioning side? Or is he rather typical? I would say he's probably right around the middle. And there is kind of a wide spectrum of some people are much lower functioning than him. And then there's some people who have nearly normal IQs. And there's sort of different degrees to which each of the different symptoms manifest. And so somebody might have almost normal IQ, but then they maybe really have, they have the health problems to a much greater degree, or, you know, I don't know, the social problems might be even more pronounced, even though they have more of the intellectual ability. So for him, I think he's, he's right about average. And then there are some people who I've met, I mean, there's some people with Williams who have learned to drive a car, have gone on to get married, um, and those are rare, and they do, I think, always need some help from a parent or a caregiver, but they're able to live more or less independently. Um, there's a girl, well, she's in her early 30s now, a young woman with Williams syndrome who's really high functioning that I met, and she's able to, she lives in semi-independent housing. It's um, It's like a subsidized housing facility where she doesn't have a caregiver in her apartment with her, but there is somebody in the building that looks after the residents. Um, so she cooks for herself. She works part-time. She takes the bus around town and she's really able to live a pretty independent life. So on that uplifting note, uh, I want to remind our listeners that Jennifer Latson's book, The Boy Who Loved Too Much, is available now at booksellers everywhere. And Jennifer Latson, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. 
I want to revisit something you said off the top, which is that people that have Williams syndrome also have an affinity for music in ways that we don't expect. And you didn't touch upon that that much in the interview. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. So that's one of the things that has fascinated me about it uh, to begin with. That's how I learned more about it. And it's this interesting combination of uh, individuals who have this very heightened emotional reaction to other people. Um, and therefore, or in addition to, they have this heightened affinity for music. And um, it doesn't always mean that they become very good at the music that they are interested in. So for example, you know, if you have a person with Williams syndrome who plays the piano, they're not necessarily going to become a concert pianist. But compared to where they are cognitively, they shouldn't play as well as they do. Uh, so there is something about their either desire uh, in order or, or their, their passion for music that supersedes what we expect they should be able to do given their cognitive problems. So is it that they're just turned up to 11 like any music playing or is it the, the evocative music they just have higher crescendos and like? The, the Muzak in the elevator, they feel the same as we do. It's a good question. And it's one that I'm actually going to explore on my other podcast, which is Cadence, What Music Tells Us About the Mind. Uh, it's available at iTunes or wherever you get your, po your podcasts. And we just uh, wrapped our first season in which we explored music from a number of different uh, uh, directions. But the second season is really going to be focused on music as medicine and in the many ways in which music and, and, and health and the way that we understand how our bodies work are intertwined. And so one of the episodes is on uh, is, is showcasing an individual with Williams syndrome. And without giving too much away, uh, I can tell you that certainly the emotional component of music seems to be a primary driver of the interest. Um, and they just seem to have a, you know, it's like the, the, the you know, do you have a couple of pieces that you listen to that really move you? And, you know, you don't always want to listen to those pieces because sometimes you don't want to go through that huge emotional thing. Now, imagine that every time you listen to that piece, not only did it move you, but it also gave you such a wonderful, rewarding feeling. You might then be more likely to seek it out. And I think that, you know, from my understanding of their experiences, of course, they don't just listen to the same piece over and over and over again, although they can for a while, but they actually listen to a large range of music. But what seems to be common across the actual pieces that they love is their emotional content. So heightened, highly emotional music um, seems more likely to be loved by individuals with Williams syndrome than, say, more atmospheric music or music that doesn't have uh, a huge emotional sway. Given that the syndrome is about missing genes, it's going to be very hard to treat because it's hard to replace what is not there. That is like we don't have very many technologies that do that. Um, but it the, the population that have this disorder are relatively low. So what is the future for the people that have the Williams? Syndrome? Yeah, this is a really good question. And this is, uh, you know, in some ways, a, a very, it's a minefield. Uh, because on the one hand, you're going to get to a point where you could test uh, uh, an embryo for the presence of this uh, you know, genetic anomaly and, you know, the decisions that you make there. I mean, it's, it's, it puts us really into murky water because for many people, people with Williams syndrome are, you know, almost at like the cusp of humanity. You know, if it's, you know, especially if you have a, a high functioning Williams syndrome individual for whom the cognitive problems and the heart problems are not as severe. I mean, you look, nobody wants to have heart problems and, and so forth and, and other difficulties, but, you know, so it, it's about neurodiversity here. And I feel like we're on a, you know, 
know, I, I hate talking about this because on the one hand, you know, there are negative aspects to the disorder. On the other hand, there are positive aspects to the disorder. And who am I to say that those don't supersede, you know, my own negative personality traits? It's, it's you know, on the other hand, would I wish it on, you know, uh, my child? Like, I think I think it would be hard. I, I don't know how to answer that question. So because I'm struggling with that question and because I think a lot of parents would struggle with it, I don't know what the future holds as we become uh, more, if, as we, there become more and more tools to do genetic testing very early in, you know, in, in the, the birth of a baby. I think that's why it's more important than ever to hear stories from people that have this condition. So I encourage everyone to check out your podcast and, and check out this book for that experience. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Michael Galgool, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Shen, Chon Johnson, Nick Cadillac. You can visit our brand new website at inquiring.show and you can support us yourselves at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by the fantastic hugger Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. We're off next week, but we'll see you in two weeks. This episode is brought to you by SendPro from Pitney Bowes. SendPro has three times the features of Stamps.com at one-third the price. Visit pb.com minds to learn more and try it free for 90 days. After that, you'll get SendPro for only five bucks a month. That's a third of the cost of Stamps.com. That special $5 rate is good for the lifetime of your SendPro subscription, but only when you sign up at pb.com slash M-I-N-D-S. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.